Good morning. I'm Phyllis Perkins, and I'm, I'm privileged to be able to read our scripture this morning. John 18, 12 through 40. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, but Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of the man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard what I've said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or do others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. 
Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Uh, Will you pray with me? Father, as we come to your word, may we see it rightly, truly, and for what it is, the truth for the ages. May you, Lord, now speak to us and help us to listen. Amen. Today marks the third week in our series, With Jesus to the End. Two weeks ago, we saw Jesus institute the ordinance of communion. And last week, we saw Jesus pray in the garden. This week, we will see Jesus on trial, as Phyllis has just read from John 18. Jesus on trial. But what is the purpose of a trial? Is it to establish the guilt of the one being tried or perhaps to establish his innocence? Is it to bring about the most expedient outcome or to arrive at the most popular conclusion? Now, one or more of these may be the result, the outcome of a trial, but none of them is the purpose of a trial. Each of these possibilities begins with the goal, the purpose already in mind. But in each case, it's the wrong goal. It's the wrong purpose. Because the purpose and the goal of a trial is very simple. It's to establish the truth. And truth is a major theme in Jesus' teaching, as it is in all of scriptures, and specifically we see it in John's gospel account. From start to finish, the gospel of John uses the words truth, true, or truly 98 times. By comparison, the word light, which is regularly accepted as a major theme in John's gospel, is used only 24 times. And in our passage today, we are going to consider, though, four interactions that take place with the truth. And we are going to see how the truth is absolutely essential to our being with Jesus to the end. If you're taking notes, the first heading today is this. The Jewish council despises the truth. They despise the truth. This is seen in verses 12 to 14 and then again in 19 through 24. The question that John is posing in these verses here, in this section is who has the authority? 
John is the only gospel writer who mentions Annas, who is the high priest formerly, but not currently. He was the father-in-law of the current high priest Caiaphas and still had great influence um, amongst the Jews as well as with Rome. But the irony is that Annas, who is not the high priest, is sitting in judgment over the one who is the great high priest. So when the officer strikes Jesus, he is striking the great high priest who every other high priest has foreshadowed and presuming to be in defense of the one who is not truly high priest, who does not truly have authority. And as Jesus replies to the officer, nothing of all of Jesus' teaching, nothing he has said in that moment or previously is wrong. Jesus has only spoken the truth. He has done nothing to attack the law of God, only the Jewish leader's wrong understanding of it. He has done nothing to question God's commands, only man's traditions. He has not challenged God's authority, but theirs. And this is why they have put him on trial. C.S. Lewis once insightfully wrote, the ancient man approached God, or even the gods, as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles are quite reversed. He is the judge. God is in the dock. He is quite a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease, he's ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. In the verses before us today, God is literally put on trial. In the other accounts of the Gospels, many witnesses are brought um, in to testify against Jesus, but none of them can agree. Their testimonies um, disagree and are not valid because none of them are true. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 63, Caiaphas, who is the actual high priest, asks Jesus directly if he is the Son of God. And once again, we see the irony dripping from the scene. Jesus' own testimony to what is true is what is used to condemn him to death. The Jewish leaders already knew what Jesus had taught. And even when it was right in front of their faces, they still chose to despise and reject it. Rather than standing under God's authority, as seen in Christ, they attempt to stand over Christ's testimony and judge it by their own authority. Ironically, is this not the same thing that we see of the atheists today? We have the religious leaders of Jesus' time and the atheists doing very similar things. Seeing right before his eyes, the atheist sees the evidence of God everywhere in creation, yet still despises the truth. And yet, irony still comes around to us. Because isn't the same thing often true of professing Christians also? We have the truth. The living and active word of God 
directly before us, accessible at our fingertips in print or digital forms. Yet any time that we presume to call the Bible's truth into question, as if to put God on trial, we wrongly place ourselves on the judge's bench. Rather than humbly standing under the authority of God's word, we defiantly seek to stand over it under our own authority. Like our first parents, Adam and Eve, in the garden, God has spoken to us in no uncertain terms, yet we so easily fall prey to the same appeal to the pride that they had. Did God really say? Did God really say, honor your father and mother, Jewish leaders? Did God really say, you shall not covet? Did God really say, lust in your heart is the same as adultery? Did God really say, you cannot serve both God and worldly things? Did God really say to honor him with your, with your wealth and the first fruits of your produce? Did God really say to love your neighbor, including the Samaritan, as yourself? Did God really say his servant would suffer and be cut off? Like the Jewish leaders, we actually convict ourselves as the guilty ones whenever we attempt to judge the truth that God has spoken. Yet even so, there is hope. More than 700 years before Jesus stood before Annas and Caiaphas, the prophet Isaiah wrote of God's servant, Jesus. He was despised and rejected by men. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, those who would pass judgment on him, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken, for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. As Jesus stood trial before the Jewish leaders, truth itself was despised and rejected. Yet by the sovereign will of God, Jesus was handed over to death that he might stand before God as our advocate, pleading our case before the true judge that he would be declared righteous based on his own righteousness and merit. And that we too might inherit his righteousness by faith. The truth that Jesus is the perfect Son of God condemned him before the earthly high priest. But it confirmed him as our true 
and great high priest who alone is able to commend us to the Father. In the same instant that the Jewish leaders and their followers were despising the one who is truth, God was simultaneously establishing Christ as truth for all eternity. So first we see the Jewish council despises the truth. Secondly, though, if you're taking notes, Peter denies the truth. This is the second heading, see, in verses 15 to 18 and then 25 to 27. For many of us, this is a familiar moment when we think of Peter especially. But what may be less familiar in thought is that Peter is actually facing his own informal trial here. We may be tempted to sit back and think to ourselves, how could Peter have done such a cowardly thing? How could he have missed everything that Jesus had taught? How could he have denied Jesus? Not once, but three times. Again, we may be tempted to sit back and be an armchair quarterback. You know what I'm talking about? Critiquing Peter's performance. But I wonder, had we been there, might not you and I have done just as Peter did? Seeking the approval of man rather than God. Fearing the condemnation of man rather than God. Perhaps your immediate response is, never, not me. I wouldn't deny Jesus. Not after I'd seen the miracles. Not after I'd already said he is the Christ. I'm not ashamed to tell people I'm a Christian. And hopefully you aren't. Hopefully you aren't ashamed to utter the words, I follow Christ. But does the life you live tell the same story? Brennan Manning was a conflicted and complicated man, and he should be read with care, but I think he was onto something when he wrote this. The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. If someone were to observe your life for a week, what would that person conclude about your relationship with Christ? Would a love for Christ be evident each and every day from start to finish? Or would the first real indication come on Sunday morning? Our mouths may say we follow Jesus, but do our lifestyles. Does what you value point to Christ? Does what you look at point to Christ? Does what you make time for point to Christ? Does what you do with your money point to Christ? Does the way you love your spouse and your children point to Christ? Does the way you go through suffering point to Christ? Does the way you speak about others when they are not around point to Christ? Does the way you act when your team wins and when they lose point to Christ? I know, a little, little fresh. Does the way, I'll give you another one. Does the way you react when you're cut off in traffic point to Christ? <clears throat> I was supposed to leave that one out. Um, conviction in the pulpit. 
Maybe you're thinking, but Jared, my faith is between me and God. He knows my heart. What is this lifestyle talk? You're right. God does know your heart. But Jesus also said, you will know a tree by its fruit. Anybody ever seen peaches grow inside the trunk of a tree? Apples? Bananas? I think you get where I'm going. If we're honest, we all have to admit that our guilt looks a whole lot like Peter's. Peter's trial may have resulted in his acquittal by a jury of his courtyard peers gathered around that fire, yet his guilt was undeniable before the Lord. But once again, there is great hope for Peter and for us. You see, the rooster's crow was the announcement of Peter's failure, yes, but also the announcement that a new day was dawning, both literally and symbolically. When Peter realized his sin, Matthew's account says of Peter, he went out and wept bitterly. And we can be sure those tears were of genuine repentance because when we genuinely repent, the Lord always graciously restores. When we genuinely repent, the Lord always is faithful to graciously restore us. Around a charcoal fire, at Peter's darkest hour, he denied Jesus three times. But if you skip over to John 21, Peter and Jesus are around another charcoal fire with some other disciples. Just after daybreak. And there... Jesus restores Peter completely. Jesus showed Peter the truth of Lamentations 3, 22 and 23 that says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. We too are offered the same steadfast love, the same mercies, the same great faithfulness that Peter received. We need only to follow him and genuinely repent, to return to Jesus, who is the truth. As Peter would later write in 1 Peter 5, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. We see first that the Jews despise the truth. We see that Peter denied the truth. And our third heading today is that Pilate dismisses the truth. We see this in verses 28 to 38. Here, John presents to us a second trial of Jesus, this time before Rome, the Roman governor, Pilate. Though the Jewish council had declared on their own authority that Jesus deserved death, Rome officially had the power of execution. That's why they say it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Only Rome could do that and there not be a stir. So Jesus is handed over into the hands of lawless men, just as he said he would be. And in the last section of chapter 18, in the first section of chapter 19, we come to Pilate, the one who is 
established as the one to pass judgment again over Jesus and to confirm the judgment of the Jews. And yet Pilate is constantly, during the end of chapter 18 and the beginning of chapter 19, constantly back and forth, in and out of his headquarters, going in to talk to Jesus and then out to talk to the Jews, in to talk to Jesus, out to talk to the Jews. He's ping-ponging back and forth, trying to discern what is true about this man, Jesus, that, that stands before him. But at the end of the day, Pilate really has no interest in what is actually true. If the irony of the Jewish trial is that the council claimed to know and should have known the truth, yet refused to hear it, then the irony here in this Roman trial is this. Pilate is the arbiter of truth of the law of the day, yet doesn't know what is true, nor does he care to know. As Pilate questions him, Jesus makes a profound statement in verse 37. You say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And in verse 38, what's Pilate's response to this? What is truth? Truth incarnate was standing right in front of Pilate, but he won't see it. Pilate asked the right question to the only one who could perfectly answer it, but he doesn't even wait for a response. Jesus has just declared, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. But Pilate won't hear Jesus' answer. Rather, he ironically goes back to the Jews and pronounces the very truth that he is so disinterested in and so dismissive of. I found no guilt in him. Pilate does this because, to Pilate, the truth is whatever he says it is. So it can just shift from one moment to the next. And if you know the rest of the story... Pilate's dismissal of that, the truth, that there is truth here in these verses is what leads him to then dismiss Jesus to be crucified. In the end, the Jewish leaders and Pilate are not really so different. The Jews searched the scriptures, Jesus said in John 5, 39, because they thought that in them they had eternal life. Yet they failed to see that those very scriptures bore witness about Jesus. Pilate had no knowledge of the truth in scripture, nor did he want to. His only concern was that the so-called truth be whatever he wanted it to be. For Pilate, the truth could change from Jesus is innocent, if that will free him of the matter and he not be bothered by it anymore, to then let him be crucified if that will prevent a riot and save Pilate's own head. But did you notice that the Jewish council and Pilate asked Jesus the same question, just from different perspectives? Now, we have to go to another gospel account to see this, but Caiaphas, in Matthew's gospel, actually asked Jesus, are you the Christ? In other words, are you our king? 
Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? The Jews had already made their minds up and Pilate wouldn't settle on what was true. But both refused to believe what Jesus had said. The two trials of Jesus are essentially the same. Jesus testifies to the truth, but neither judge will hear it. It shouldn't come to us, uh, to us as a surprise that the truth of Jesus is still being questioned in our day. And I'd argue that the main movement behind this is called progressive Christianity. On progressive, progressivechristianity.org, there's a list of five core values that seek to summarize what progressive Christians believe. And the fifth of these, I think, does the best job of summing it all up. Summing up what you need to know about this movement. It says this. It says, we are Christians who commit to a path of lifelong learning. Not so bad to start out with. The second half says this. Believing there is more value in questioning than in absolutes. Like Pilate, progressive Christianity wants to define Jesus on its own terms while simultaneously denying Jesus' own words. You don't believe Jesus was truly God? That's okay, progressive Christians say. You don't believe Jesus bore the wrath of God and, de- and died a substitutionary death for sinners? That's fine. You don't believe Jesus rose from the dead? No problem. Neither do we. How could we know? You don't believe the Old and New Testaments are God's authoritative word? Good for you. But it turns out, The only thing progressive about such teaching is how it progresses deeper and deeper into heresy. Paul warned Timothy about this type of teaching when he wrote to him where Timothy was serving in Ephesus. He wrote that such people have the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. We know that power, as he writes elsewhere, is the power of the crucified Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Risen and ascended to the right hand of the Father. But in in 2 Timothy 3, Paul goes on to write, Always learning and never never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. These men oppose the truth, Paul says, men corrupted in mind, and disqualified regarding the faith. The truth is this movement is neither progressive nor Christian. And while names like Richard Rohr and Brian McLaren pride themselves on being progressive Christians, other names fly under the radar because they have, as Paul says, the appearance of godliness. One name that you may have heard of and may grieve to hear me say these things is Andy Stanley. Andy Stanley is the founder of North Point Community Church in Alpharetta, Georgia, just outside of Atlanta. It's the largest church in the state of Georgia. Each Sunday, over 30,000 people fill the main campus and its satellite campuses. 
And for reference, the average home game for the Braves is less than 24,000 people. Over the past decade, Andy Stanley has been progressing further and further away from the historical Christian faith. He has said things such as, for the Bible tells me so, which by the way, we sing to our children every night and we'll continue to do so. But that's not enough to bring modern people to faith. It's not good enough that the Bible says it. He's regularly disparaged the New Testament and called its validity into question in almost every one of his sermons at some point. He's talked about how a North Point leader had an affair with another man. And instead of dismissing this man from the church, Stanley merely moved him to a different campus where he continues to serve with his male partner he left his wife for. In 2018, Stanley preached that Christians should unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament, which, of course, he later tried to walk back. But perhaps if Andy Stanley would rehitch himself to the authority of scriptures, he'd see that his teaching isn't so progressive except towards heresy. How much heresy does it take to make one a heretic is maybe a question Andy Stanley needs to ask himself. Just like every sin and every lie, Andy Stanley and other progressive Christians had the sin that is, has its origins all the way back in the garden. The fruit may taste slightly different, but the trees are all planted in this same cursed soil. The question, did God really say? And according to the Bible, Jesus is God. Did Jesus really say that he and the Father are one? Progressive Christianity has its doubts. Did Jesus really say homosexuality is a sin? Andy Stanley's not convinced. Did Jesus really say there are only two genders designed by God to reflect his image? Progressive Christians say that's hateful. Did Jesus really say to the, to the Father, your word, Father, is truth? Andy Stanley thinks that's insufficient. Presuming we can pass judgment on what God has said is true will always lead us further from the truth. Yet once again, there is grace and hope in the truth. Repentance is the first step. We must turn from what is false and to what is true. Rather than seeking to define for ourselves what is truth, we must look to the one who declared and displayed that he is the way, the truth, and the life. We will never come to know truth apart from God's word, for truth is only known by God's word. Science and experience may teach truth that's not found verbatim in the scriptures, but God created science, let me remind you, and God created human experience. All truth is God's truth, and the scriptures directly bear witness to the truth. So to turn Andy Stanley's illustration on its head, we must stay hitched both to the Old and the New Testaments. But better yet, 
to use Jesus' own illustration in Matthew 7. We should leave behind the house built on shifting sand that says truth is relative. How could we know it? And instead, build our lives on the solid rock found in the unwavering truth of God's word. This brings us to our fourth and final section today. Barabbas depicts the truth found in verses 39 and 40. If you've read any of the gospel accounts from Jesus' arrest up until his crucifixion, then you've read the name Barabbas before. And while Barabbas may be a known name, not a whole lot is known about him. Matthew's gospel refers to him as a notorious prisoner. That's Matthew 27, 16. Mark and Luke being involved, or mention him being involved in an insurrection against Rome and being a murderer. That's Mark 15, verse 7, and Luke 23, verse 18. And here in John's gospel, he's called a robber. The only other details that any of the gospel writers really give us is that the Jewish leaders stir up the crowds and demand that Pilate release Barabbas instead of Jesus. So to avoid a riot, Pilate gives in to the crowd's demands and releases Barabbas to them. So how does Barabbas depict the truth to us? Because that's it. That's all the text explicitly gives us about Barabbas at least in the English text. Now, to be clear, let me be very, very clear about this. I do not believe that one needs to study the original languages to rightly understand the Bible. Again, we're venturing into heretical types of teaching there. But in the case of Barabbas, the original languages paint a picture in vibrant colors that the English can only render in black and white. So first, let's consider the Greek. The Greek word that John uses to describe Barabbas here is the word lestes, the word robber. Mark mentions the men who are crucified on either side of Jesus. And when he does, he uses the exact same Greek word, lestes. Here's why that is so significant. Crucifixion was not merely used to execute, but to make an example of the ones who are being crucified. And if Mark tells us that a laestes was crucified next to Jesus, we can instantly infer that means Barabbas was almost certainly on his way to be crucified. But Jesus took his place. Perhaps his very cross. And in a spiritual and thus far more significant sense. This is true of every believer. Whether it's the self-righteous legalism of the Jewish council, or the self-preserving cowardice of Peter, or the self-aggrandizing relativism of Pilate, at the end of the day, each one of us is Barabbas, undeniably guilty, destined for death. Ever since the garden, humanity has in one way or another exchanged the truth for a lie and sought to put God on trial. But God, being 
rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, Ephesians 2 tells us. Jesus is our Passover lamb, the substitution for our sin, the one who took our place and set us free from death row. If we will only believe in him. But Barabbas doesn't stop there. He also depicts the truth for us in this way, this astonishing way. And this time, it's the Hebrew or its Aramaic derivative that helps us to see it. Barabbas's name is the combination of two Hebrew words. Bar, meaning son of, and Abba, an intimate word for father. Put them together. Barabbas literally means son of the father. When we place our faith in Jesus, the only son of the father, full of grace and wait for it, truth, John 1.14 tells us, we receive the spirit of, wait for it again, truth, who Jesus promised would lead us into all, say it with me, truth. And in Romans 8, 14 to 17, the apostle Paul wrote, all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Through faith in our elder brother, the true son of the father, we are adopted in as sons of the everlasting father. The trial of Jesus is about establishing the truth. The truth that Jesus is completely guiltless and the truth that each of us is fully guilty. The truth is, the gospel of Jesus is the greatest plea bargain of all time. The truth is Jesus. If you know the truth, go and live like it. If you do not yet know the truth, come today in faith. And for all of us, the promise remains for eternity. The truth will set you free. Let's pray. Father, may we humbly submit ourselves to the truth that you have revealed to us in your son, in your creation, and in your word. God, as, 
as your word says, may we not neglect so great a salvation as you have offered us. May we freely admit our guilt, yet come to Jesus, the guiltless one, for our atonement, to be made one with you, Lord God, as you and the Son are one. Lord, to you may the glory be forever and ever. Amen.